turn, if, if you would please, uh, again to Luke chapter 13. I thought about what uh, end of the year quips I could make, and there are many, but uh, it's just awfully hard, for me at least, uh, not to think about the year we're about to enter as being a definitive year. I'm sure I've thought that every year, and all of mankind thinks that every year. There's another year, but uh, goodness, things are going to happen in 2024 uh, that uh, are going to be interesting, at, to say the least. So uh, we, we need uh, this book. <clears throat> this is the secret to 2024, is that's the secret to everything, is, is to have the wisdom that God has given us in his word as we move forward. I, I want to, uh, what we're going to do today is, is a very brief little passage at the end of chapter 13, it's verse 31 to 35 uh, of Luke 13, and again, <clears throat> I would uh, remind us that here in the middle of Luke, for very good reason, Jesus is, is with his disciples and he's, he's trying to train these men because he knows what they're about to encounter and the needs they're going to have and what it's going to take for them to do the job well. And uh, of course, he's the Holy Spirit, that's the whole point of Pentecost. Uh, they're, they're not going to be out there alone. But uh, nonetheless, they need uh, to know the reality of this universe. And nothing whatsoever has changed from this point in history, roughly 2,000 years ago, uh, to today. You and I need the same exact insight that uh, Jesus is giving to these men and to these people of Israel. Uh, and I just, uh, it, it's, as we've seen, this, this section is, is strident. It, it's uh, in your face. There are lines drawn in the sand repeatedly by Jesus. I just want to remind you of a few of them. Uh, from Luke chapter 9, verse 62 says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So this is going to take steadfast, forward-looking, dedicated, uh, this meaning to be a Christian. From chapter 10, verses 15 and 16, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Uh, so uh, to this little town of Capernaum, and it's uh, twin sister Bethsaida that is uh, only about a mile apart. These two little villages where they were, at least, they are not in existence today. Uh, <clears throat> these, uh, if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God. And if you're rejecting God, you're going to end up in a similar vein. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 49 to 51 say this, Therefore... Also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Jesus is, is telling these Israelites that he's meeting uh, 
that generation of Israelites, he is holding responsible for the deaths of every prophet from Adam and Eve forward, which seems a little strident. Uh, chapter 12, verses 51 and 53. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Chapter 13, where we are, verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. All of these uh, these things keep piling up, and uh, it certainly uh, speaks a need for a, for a more complete description of what I often hear today as a very simple gospel. Is the gospel simple? Yes, it is. Believe in Jesus, be saved. Put your faith in him as Lord and Savior of your life. Have a penitent <clears throat> faith, and you are saved. That is a Holy Spirit uh, creation. You, you can't just do it because you want to, but if you find yourself wanting to, it is probably because the Holy Spirit is entering your heart. But nonetheless, this, this uh, easy uh, stroke of the pen sort of, of Christendom that I run into often certainly doesn't seem to fit the passages we've been reading. And I want to get back just briefly to that 11th chapter about Jesus holding one generation responsible for the blood of all of the prophets. Now, we, all, of course, uh, talked about that. Uh, there was a commentator named Manson, T.W. Manson, uh, who explained it this way. They killed the prophets, and they, meaning all the people through two millennium of, of, uh, two millennia of, of Israelite history, you, meaning this generation, made sure they're dead. What Jesus was angry with them was because they were building memorials to them and, and big fancy tombs uh, to the prophets. And, and uh, Jesus uh, is, is basically calling this generation a generation of word killers, capital W, this book, killers, snuffing it out. When you read that, would Jesus' own generation be judged for the blood of all the prophets slain over millennia? Yes, they would. Why? Because they were the most privileged generation in all of human history. They had the word walking in their midst. And because of that responsibility, Jesus holds them responsible for everything. They have John the Baptist. They have Jesus himself. But when you read that, you cannot help but think, what in the world does he think of the current generation in the world? Uh, we have, um, it was interesting, I, I have, uh, there's a company in England, Allen, the Allen company <clears throat> that makes the best Bibles on the planet, uh, best paper, best printing, best, uh, best everything. And I, I was uh, sitting there thinking, I sure would like to have this. They make a, well, I won't go into the details, but it's a very unusual Bible in, in the terms of, of the layout of it. Uh, left margin, uh, versification, and, and all of this thing, a larger font. 
which some of us need, um, <clears throat> on and on and on. Then I turned around and, and saw about 15 Bibles behind me, everything from RSVs to uh, NIVs to King James to everything else under the sun. I thought, this is great. Now, do, do I actually spend enough time in any one of those 15 copies that I would not come under the same uh, kind of uh, condemnation from Jesus? I certainly... Uh, we need to understand going into what we see today. Now he's going to put a sort of a cherry on the whipped cream, so to speak, on this 13th chapter today. We're going to see in just uh, these uh, five or so verses, another passionate, chilling pronouncement. We're going to see in verse 31, two and three, a statement of sovereign purpose. In verse 34, a cry of deep passion and lament. And in verse 35, a prophecy of frightful proportion. So first, verses 31, 2, and 3, a statement of sovereign purpose. Jesus begins verse 31 this way. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. That's a completely out of character statement. The Pharisees, as we have have seen chapter after chapter after chapter, they're the ones that want to kill Jesus. They're already plotting to kill Jesus. So what, have they turned over a new leaf? Uh, No, Uh, not surprisingly. Now this Herod they're talking about is Herod Antipas. He was was the ruler of the Galilee Perea region. Remember, we saw Jesus way, way up north uh, in Galilee, the extreme north of Galilee, way above the the Sea of Galilee. Uh, That's Herod territory, this particular Herod. these people are saying, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. The commentators have any number of, of reasons they want to, to try to figure out this statement by the Pharisees. If you boil them all down, they basically go into two directions. Either Herod was using the Pharisees to intimidate Jesus, to chase him out, get him out of the Galilee region. They don't. Herod didn't want him up there. Herod had already killed John the Baptist. And maybe he's uh, having second thoughts about that and he doesn't want to face Jesus. So maybe Herod himself, but but the better, uh, more logical format going forward, I think, is to see the Pharisees were in fact using Herod in this statement. Why? Because they also want to get Jesus out of Galilee. Now, Herod... And the Pharisees did not get along well. So there's no reason for them to be making this statement under ordinary circumstances, but these are not ordinary circumstances. The Pharisees need Jesus down to Jerusalem because they're in control of Jerusalem, not Herod. His father, Herod the Great, has already gone from the scene. Uh, So the Pharisees know that they can control everything about Jesus when they get him back south. And they're moving uh, to try to do that in this this little statement. And now many more insights become apparent when you get to the 32nd verse. Uh, So in 31, the Pharisees come to Jesus. They get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus replies in verse 32. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. That is, um, as with all the words of Jesus, this is packed, uh, full of a lot of fascinating insight here. Interesting that he says, says, go and tell that fox. Uh, First of all, 
it's interesting that Jesus would assume that the Pharisees and Herod are having communication because, again, they did not get along together. Herod did not like the Pharisees being up in his neck of the woods. But Jesus knows, of course, what has gone on behind the scenes. Uh, You can't hide from Jesus. None of us can. And Jesus knows that they have contact. So he says, okay, go tell this guy. Uh, A lot of commentators make a big deal out of calling him a fox as opposed to a lion or or some other kind of animal. It doesn't uh, doesn't matter that much. Uh, But uh, Jesus says, uh, go on and, and tell that fox what my mission really is. And that's the import of the second half of the 32nd verse. Very, very Uh, freighted uh, verse. Uh, Jesus says, over the next two days, I'm going to be casting out demons and curing people. But on the third day, I finish my course. He says, I must go on my way. What, what What is compelling him? Well, in a sense, from the opening page of Genesis, in point of fact, all the way back before that, is what is compelling Jesus. Uh, What is compelling him and what is the key to this statement of the purpose of Jesus is something that theologians uh, have called the covenant of redemption. Uh, The covenant of redemption is a name that has been given to the pact, if you will, that happened between the father and the son before anything is created, before there is a universe of any sort. The father comes to the son and says, here is what is going to happen. I am going to create a universe and this universe is going to be composed of only one type of person and that's a sinner. But I have a people. I'm going to carve out a people among these sinners, even though God, I am completely just and good and cannot tolerate sinful people. I'm going to have a means whereby I can accomplish my end and gather my people to myself. And the means is going to be through you, my son, coming to a cross and dying for these people. That is the covenant of redemption. Uh, I mention this book uh, often uh, among virtually every group of people I ever encounter, a book by John Murray called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. To me, it's, it's a small book as theologians go. Um, it's, I think it's the clearest book that I have ever read on this whole concept of a covenant of redemption. Here is how it were. We've gone over you know, that eight-step uh, process that, uh, that we talk about in here from time to time, beginning with an effectual calling and regeneration, new heart, faith, repentance, um, justification, adoption, all those things. Uh, Murray goes through all of that, but the the title of the book is what's important. Redemption accomplished and applied. He's talking about the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father sets the plan in motion. The Son is sent to accomplish the plan, and the Holy Spirit applies what the Son has accomplished to the people of God. Uh, That is what is behind Jesus' statement here. Uh, So... uh, so incredibly, wonderfully made. On the third day, I finish my course. Jesus, the son, is well aware of why he has been sent by the father. And it is his willingness uh, to go to this cross and endure all the suffering, having lived a sinless life uh, that 
that uh, makes this an accomplished covenant of redemption to redeem uh, the people of God. There are a couple of fascinating passages about this throughout the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10, verse seven uh, says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. That's Jesus. Now he's actually quoting from the 40th Psalm at that point. The Bible from beginning to end uh, is referencing this wonderful mission that Jesus will eventually we've embark upon. We've just come through the incarnation. That was the uh, sort of overt beginning, you might say, even though that it began back before time began. Uh, nonetheless, the incarnation of Jesus was required for him to come to earth in some way that involved no sin and to begin this life of, of sinless uh, obedience to the Father. Uh, but uh, Jesus says in Hebrews 10, 7, I've come to do your will. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 34. This is the episode in John where Jesus is dealing with the woman from Samaria, the woman at the well. And he's told her a good many things, and she has gone back uh, to tell the people in her village, some of whom respond uh, to this gospel that this woman has, has heard. But in uh, verse 34 of John 4, the disciples come up to Jesus and say, wait a minute, what are, what, A, what are you doing here in Samaria, Samaria? B, what are you doing talking to this woman? C, what are you doing? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's about the clearest statement you can find uh, in the New Testament about this covenant of redemption to accomplish this work. Uh, but uh, probably the most uh, magisterial coverage of this, I probably don't even need to tell you where this is coming from. The Apostle Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That, of course, is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. That is the sort of the, uh, the grand universal concept of this covenant of redemption that is Trinitarian in nature. 
talks about God the Father's plan, the Son's accomplishment, and the Holy Spirit's sealing of it, uh, the application of it to guarantee. Uh, all of that is packed at the end of the 32nd verse of Luke 13, when he says, and the third day I finish my course. So Jesus is responding, that's a statement he's making uh, to these Pharisees, and it is uh, quite a dramatic uh, statement, but Jesus isn't through. That's, that's the sovereign purpose. I mentioned that we begin in those first three verses with a statement of sovereign purpose. Verse 34 is a cry of deep passion and lament. Very special verse. It says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Um, <clears throat> there's a statement virtually identical to this in the 23rd chapter of Matthew. So there are always commentators uh, discussing whether Jesus said it twice. I don't think he did. Uh, or whether Luke, as we have seen Luke's pattern to put together these, these uh, descriptions, all the, the four um, <clears throat> gospel writers do this. They, they have crafted their books according to the direction of the Holy Spirit. You know, at the end of the Gospel of John, for instance, in John chapter 20, he says, there are so many things. I, this book, I couldn't even fill a book. Uh, they're, they're overflow. I need a whole library uh, if I wanted to tell you all the things Jesus did. But John puts together seven miracles and seven discourses to explain these seven miracles. Well, Luke has done nothing different. Uh, Luke is, is uh, it, he's not doing anything wrong. This isn't plagiarism. This isn't uh, anything odd. He's putting, he's putting a statement here that fits exactly into what he is trying to convey about how Jesus is feeling uh, as he speaks to these disciples and to the people who are following him and his statement. Uh, the first three words of it, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, these are intense words of emotion, of longing, of lament. Philip Ryken <clears throat> wants us to understand something that I think is very, very important that is often missed. And that is that Jesus Christ was an emotion-laden human being. He was God, of course, but as, a, uh, as man, he was very, very deep and emotion-laden. I say that because we all know the Gilbert Stewart picture of George Washington on the $1 bill. Uh, Gilbert Stewart was a down-and-out artist and, and uh, happened to be at the right place at the right time, and he, and he painted that, that portrait. But it's such, you know, Washington is just sitting there almost with his, it's almost like as an adult, somebody has said, yeah, I think you did chop down that cherry tree, George. And he's saying, mm, you caught me. That's kind of the expression, but, but it's, it's emotionless. It's, but far worse is the picture that we all grew up with from a, a man named Solomon, who in 1940 made that picture of Jesus. Now, we all have seen this picture of Jesus. Uh, we realize uh, the problems behind uh, 
creating an image uh, that that, uh, that picture creates. But that picture of Jesus is, is burned in most people's minds who, who are more than 30 years old. Um, and maybe it's, I guess it's still around in, in a lot of churches and so forth, but the picture is emotionless. And that's what, what peeves me at the present time and why I want to put a little emphasis on this particular statement by Jesus. <clears throat> This is not the Jesus that you find anywhere in the four gospels. Uh, Riken's statement, by the way, he says this, and I'm quoting, no one has ever had a more dynamic emotional life than Jesus Christ, but we so rarely think of him that way. Uh, but you need to understand that when Jesus is speaking to you and to me about the truth of the gospel and the, the need uh, to come to him that he in fact does love you and want you uh, to be repentant of your sin and so forth. These things are not just theological statements to be found in an abstract book. Uh, these things are coming from the heart uh, of uh, arguably the most emotive, well, let's not even argue about it, it's the most emotive human being that ever walked the earth as God. B.B. Warfield, one of my favorite theologians. I hope all of you have Warfield's books virtually. Uh, well, a lot of, most of what he wrote is still obtainable and it's extremely readable. Warfield was a professor, one of the, one of the good guys at Princeton Seminary in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And everything the man wrote is worth reading and worth having and worth studying. Uh, there's a little bitty book, uh, well, it's not that little. Uh, the book itself is called The Person and Work of Christ, but it's a collection of Warfield's statements. Some of them were speeches he made, some of them were lectures he gave, some of them were conferences and all this kind of stuff uh, that had to do anything and everything that the collator thought would be appropriate for a book entitled The Person and Work of Christ. One of the chapters in that book is called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. It's about 50 pages long, and it goes through countless verses uh, pointing out the, the depth that, uh, it, that you get from, from not just an English Bible, but in particular from a Greek uh, Bible. The, the words, uh, he, he highlights the following uh, passages, or not passages, but emotions that come uh, from various passages in the gospel, pity, compassion, tears, sighs, groans, love, indignation, anger, pain, grief, rage, ardor. And he goes, I, I'm giving you the tip of the iceberg here. Um, the rage, by the way, is the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept, you know, the story in, uh, in John of, uh, of his raising of Lazarus. And it says, Jesus comes in and, and hears Mary and Martha crying and all the people are crying and his friend Lazarus has died and it says Jesus wept. And we think, well, that's, that's sentimental. Uh, there isn't one shred of sentimentality in that verse. It's almost an onomatopoeic uh, word in Greek. Uh, just like uh, if you open a comic book and you read words like pow, bang, zip, zing, that's onomatopoeic. It, it's trying to uh, create uh, the impression of a sound uh, rather than a word, and that word, when it says Jesus wept, it is a word of, of what uh, Warfield calls irrepressible anger. It's, it's closer to the whinny of a horse 
uh, than it is anything else. Is he crying? Yes, he's crying. He's, he, is, he is raging is what he is doing. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the grave and he knows Lazarus is his own and he's going to be with Jesus for eternity. Uh, but what Jesus is raging against is death itself that this, this awful, awful thing has come in and been forced upon uh, even God's children for all of us to endure. So this is, uh, this is a savior uh, who we don't want to think of in, in generic little uh, doily, nicey, uh, emotionless terms. I, I'll pick out just one verse that Warfield uh, discusses. It's Matthew 9, verse 36, very familiar verse. Talks about the crowds. Uh, Jesus said the crowds uh, are like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless are the two words in our English ESVs. Harassed and helpless. Well, the Greek behind those two words is something much, much deeper than that. The, Jesus is talking about it look like sheep. Sheep without a shepherd. And these two words, what they originally uh, brought to mind in the people who heard them was the fact that sheep without a shepherd are wandering uh, in fear, in the unknown. They, they, no one's leading them. They're, they're going from here to there. They're running from predators. They're, they're plowing through, through bushes and things of that nature. And in fact, that word harass probably more closely originally meant flayed or mangled. Their bodies are bleeding because they have been wounded physically from the fact that they are leaderless. The word helpless goes more to prostrated. They're scattered. Uh, that's, that's the kind of helplessness that is, is meant to be conveyed. Jesus says, I look out on, on the people and they're like sheep without a shepherd. They are leaderless. They are helpless. They're lost. They're mangled. They're tortured by this world in many, many ways. And I'm going to quote from Warfield here. It's very powerful the way he describing Matthew 9, 36. He says, the emphasis is thrown very distinctly on the spiritual destitution of the people as the cause of Jesus's compassionate regard. But when he saw the multitude, he's quoting here from the Matthew 9, he was moved with compassion for them because they were distressed and scattered as sheep not having a shepherd. And Warfield continues, this description of the spiritual destitution of the people is cast in very strong language. They are compared to sheep which have been worn out and torn by running hither and thither through the thorns with none to direct them and have now fallen helpless and hopeless to the ground. The sight of their desperate plight awakens our Lord's pity and moves him to provide the remedy. End quote. What is the remedy? The remedy we read at the end of verse 31 or verse 32 to the third day when he finishes his course. The remedy will involve, of course, Jesus going to the cross. Something expressed here in this 34th verse of Luke 13, when Jesus completes the verse by saying, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. This, uh, this God-man, this Jesus, who is moved more deeply in his soul than any of us are even capable of being moved, 
is saying, I, I would have just spread my wings over you and gathered you to myself, but you wouldn't do it. Uh, that just brings to mind so many, so many passages, and I don't have time to talk about it, but I will tiptoe through the tulips of the Psalter just a bit. Let me uh, read Psalm 17, verse 8, a prayer of David. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36, verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Psalm 61, verse 4. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And Psalm 63, verses 5, 6, and 7. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. And finally, I will go to the 91st Psalm. Here's how it opens. Uh, the title of this psalm is My Refuge and My Fortress. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Over and over and over again, Scripture uh, is describing this covenant of redemption, this love that God the Father has for a people, we often, again, we think of the father as, as, as angry, uh, detached. He's over there. He's not communicative. Uh, he, he's over there. Well, no, no. He loved so much that he brings his son and gives him the worst mission that anybody can ever contemplate, which he carries out with total faithfulness, sinlessness, and the Holy Spirit then applies it. And all you and I have to do is respond here is the shepherd crying out to us from the first page of Genesis to the last page of Revelation with wings outspread to pinion us and protect us and put us under. Uh, and why, why do we not come running? Third and final point in the 35th verse, a prophecy of frightful proportion. Behold, your house is forsaken. He's, Jesus is now talking to these people in Israel who refuse to come to him. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ominous, ominous words. And when do they become true? Are we seeing them come true today? 
as Hamas comes into Israel uh, among Jews and beheads babies. Um, a lot to be said on that. We don't uh, have the time to go into it right now, but we'll touch a little bit on it. Well, first of all, of course, you think of the triumphal entry. Uh, in just a small amount of time, as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, the people, uh, many of whom are probably with him up in the Galilee now and will accompany him down to Jerusalem. When he first comes into town on Friday, it's a good Friday. Everybody's out with their palm bonds. Uh, they're waving and they're saying, oh, here he Two days later, they nail him to a tree. Uh, so that's a, that's a fozami. That's a, that's a false friend. That's not uh, going to help them any. It was the Jews then who crucified Jesus. Well, maybe it's 68, 69, 70 AD when the Romans come in and starve the people of Jerusalem. Here's how Josephus describes that. Roofs thronged with famished women holding babies. Alleys filled with the corpses of the elderly. Children swollen from starvation who roamed like phantoms through the marketplaces and collapsed wherever their doom overtook them. Is this what he's talking about? Is this it for Jerusalem, the Jews? Nevermore? Salvation over? Case closed? Book closed? Jesus... I would suggest to you it absolutely is not the end. And if you want to read a couple of passages, I'm not going to take you there now, but read Isaiah 53, very familiar. But if you read it through this particular lens, through this prism where you're looking at the notion of what is in store, read Isaiah 53. That's, we, that's a very, very famous passage where he's talking, Isaiah talks about the servant who comes to die on a cross. Uh, but read it with the notion of what is the future for the Jews. You could read Hosea chapter 11, where God gets so angry with the Jews, he said, okay, this is it. I'm throwing your toast. You're out of here. I'm never coming back to you again. And then one verse later, he says, but I can't do it. I love my people and I'll never let them go. More importantly, read the entire 11th chapter of the, of the book of Romans and you will see in fact, I will just uh, give you a hint. Uh, can't not read. Here's the opening of chapter 11 of Romans. Paul, a Jew himself, a Jew of Jews, he calls himself. I asked then, Paul says, has God rejected his people by no means? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Then continue through that uh, chapter and what you will find there is that we Gentiles have been grafted in. God has partially hardened, Paul says, the hearts of the Israelites to let the Gentiles be grafted in as a wild shoot into this tree until all the Gentiles are in and then all Israel will be saved. Who knows what that means? I don't, but the point is no. As frightful as the words of verse 35 of Luke 13 are, this is not the end. But the point of it is not to be so concerned about what's going on today in Israel and does that have any role to play. The Jews who are in Israel today, by the way, are secular Jews. And the only reason that uh, any Jew would ever think he or she would have any sort of say in the land we know of as geopolitical Israel would be if they are a follower of Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father but through the Son, period. Jew or Gentile. 
But the point of this is what does it mean to you and to me? Do we want to come to open our heart to give our minds and our thoughts and our lives to this compassionate Savior to dwell forever under his very loving wings? Yes, it is true that the door is narrow. We, we read all those passages in the middle of Luke, foreboding in a sense. Uh, they're simply Jesus being very, very honest and upfront with all of us. The door is narrow, but remember, as Paul said, it is wide enough to admit the chief of sinners. This is 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, Paul, am the foremost. Uh, I think I can give Paul a very good run for his money. I don't know about any of you, but the point is those wings are spread and they will never be anything but spread. Come to Jesus. Do not refuse to hear him. Do not get away from the wisdom that is in this book of a holy God who has sent his son to redeem a people for himself. Father, we do, uh, we do thank you. We come to these kinds of passages and they're so, so full. But we thank you that you have a desire from Adam and Eve forward. You could have started this whole human race with two people who immediately sinned. You could have did, okay, bad idea. I'm through with these people, but you didn't. Your grace came into that garden of Eden and your grace comes into Greenville, South Carolina and its environs today. And it comes around this little blue planet that's suspended in space at your will and your purpose and your desire. And you still bring this same gospel only just like these people, this generation of Americans, the 21st century has far less excuse than these Jews who walked with Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem. We have your word. We know the words of the prophets. We know your words, O Lord and we have your spirit. Father, help us to be evangelists, to get this word out to others. It is the Holy Spirit's role to see that this grace that has been accomplished by Jesus is actually applied to the individual hearts. We don't need to worry about that. We need to first embrace the truth of the gospel ourselves and secondly, get this truth out to everyone on this planet. Oh, Father, we thank you that you love us to the degree that you do. And we thank you that there is shelter under your wings. May we seek it, may we remain under it and never ever be found anywhere else. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen.